Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well. We have a lot to cover this week, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on recap other than to say that we are halfway through a series that we began a couple weeks ago entitled The Journey to the Empty Tomb. And in this series, we've been looking at various details, uh, uh, individuals, and background information that really kind of helps the story of the last week of Jesus kind of come to life and help you to understand more of kind of what's going on behind the scenes uh, so that we can fully appreciate what's really uh, happening uh, in the Easter story that we hear so often. Now, for those who typically listen to uh, these studies via podcast, we're trying to uh, include in the podcast pictures and videos and things like that, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, So I'd encourage you, especially with this uh, particular study that we're going to be doing this week, uh, you might want to watch this on our Facebook uh, video because we're going to have some images that's going to help you understand some of the things that we're talking about. Now, with all that said, in this uh, study, we started off looking at uh, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And that happened uh, most likely on Sunday of the Passion Week. And so uh, we saw Sunday, uh, him coming into uh, the, uh, the temple and to, um, the, uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And there he was greeted by the crowds as they shouted Hosanna and waved palm branches, and especially the Pharisees really got um, bothered by what they were seeing. This was a very messianic type of image that Jesus was intentionally doing. We also saw that once he went into Jerusalem, he uh, went into the temple, and there he turned over the tables and upset the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the financial system that they had in place there in the temple. Then we saw um, Monday and Tuesday where Uh, Jesus was going into the temple, he was teaching the crowds, and as he was doing that, the chief priests and the Pharisees were coming to him trying to shame Jesus because they felt they had been shamed and they were trying to regain some of their honor. They were hoping that by publicly shaming Jesus there in front of the crowds, uh, that Jesus would lose some of his honor in, in, in front of the people and they would um, turn away from Jesus and back to the religious teachers of that day. And that kind of brings us to our time here this week. Uh, we see that after Jesus had shamed the religious leaders of that day, that he then um, withdrew from them so that he could spend time with his disciples. And we see Jesus doing that on Wednesday and Thursday of the Passion Week. And so, um, most likely on Wednesday, uh, Jesus was withdrawn with his disciples into the town of Bethany. That's where Jesus was staying, probably about a half a mile outside of Jerusalem. And there he was spending some time with his disciples in uh, the house of Simon the leper. He probably wasn't a leper anymore. Uh, Jesus most likely probably healed him. That's why Simon opened his house to Jesus and the disciples. And while they were there uh, hanging out, Jesus was probably teaching, maybe eating a meal. Um, there is a woman who comes into the house of Simon the leper and begins to anoint Jesus. Now, we need to pause here for a moment because there's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate as to who this woman is. And honestly, we don't really know. Now, some people try to ascribe uh, this woman uh, as being Mary Magdalene because we do have, at least in 
uh, some of the Gospels, an account of where Mary, Mary Magdalene anoints Jesus primarily on his feet, dries his, uh, hair, uh, dries his feet with her hair, and this is a very um, uh, special time in the ministry of Jesus where that happens. I don't think that's what's going on here because that's supposed to have happened in the home of Lazarus. And we uh, know from the Gospels that that happened um, uh, six days out from Passover, whereas this one seems to have occurred two days out from Passover. So what? Uh, while some people try to combine these uh, times of the anointing of Jesus, I think they're actually uh, separate times where Jesus has been anointed. There's another time... Um, much earlier in Jesus's ministry where he was anointed by another person that had nothing to do with the Passover week. And so I think what we see here is Jesus is anointed by Mary, Mary Magdalene um, a few days before his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which is very uh, timely because it would be almost as though she was anointing him as king of the Jews just before he rode in as a triumphant king into Jerusalem. And then we have another anointing two days out from the crucifixion of Jesus where this unnamed woman anoints Jesus, uh, as we'll see in just a little bit, with this costly oil, which was probably some kind of spikenard, which was a very popular oil during that time, a very expensive oil at that time, that was commonly commonly used for burial purposes to, um, to kind of hide or mask the smell of the decayed uh, corpse um, after their death. And so that would have been very timely because Jesus is now quickly approaching his crucifixion and his death. And here this woman anoints Jesus for his burial. And so it's uh, just very interesting, these two different um, times of the anointing of Jesus at very um, important times in his last week here on this earth. Now, as she comes in, what we do know about this woman is that she comes in to anoint him with this costly oil. And we know that it was... Uh, the, the price of this oil would have been 300 denarius, which is about a year's wage. And most scholars believe that this probably was her wedding dowry, which means that she either, one, never got married, two, her husband may have divorced her, but it would not have been for adultery because in that case she would not have re received back her wedding dowry, or perhaps her husband had died, and so she received that as uh, a way of... Um, uh, supporting herself after the death of her husband. Whatever the case may be, we do know that the Gospels tell us that when she begins to anoint Jesus, um, the disciples, seeing this um, extravagant gift given to Jesus, and maybe not quite understanding that this is anointing him for his burial, they begin to grumble uh, as to um, why she would spend so much money, spend such an extravagant gift on Jesus. And while we don't know this to be a fact, it may have been at the prompting of Judas that this grumbling began because we know at least at one other occasion when Jesus was anointed, again, Judas was uh, initiated the grumbling and complaining uh, that such a costly gift would be used on Jesus when um, the argument was uh, that this could be given to the poor. And Jesus, again, rebukes uh, the disciples uh, tells them that they always have the poor with them, but they won't always have Jesus with them. And so he rebukes the disciples, but he praises this woman and says that this thing that she has done will be uh, told uh, throughout um, throughout the generations over over uh, many years. It, it will be told what she has done for Jesus. Now the interesting thing is right after this, 
we see in the Gospels that Judas then leaves and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which again, I think the Gospel writers put this in, uh, to contrast these two events. Here is this unnamed woman who uh, is so touched by the ministry of Jesus, we're not told what Jesus has done for her or, or why she is so impacted by Jesus, but she's willing to give a year's wage to, um, to honor Jesus in this way, whereas Judas then leaves goes to the chief priest and basically sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And we know by um, scholarly accounts that 30 pieces of silver would have been um, really not that much. There's some debate as to whether it was it was somewhere in the ballpark of uh, anywhere from 200 to maybe $400 in our uh, current um, uh, currency, current uh, financial um estimates. And so that would have been a, the uh, rough estimate of what a slave was worth. And it would have been also, as we see later in the Gospels, uh, the amount of money Judas would need to purchase a vacant lot outside of Jerusalem where he then goes and hangs himself. Um, but it's just a powerful contrast in the lives of these two individuals, this unnamed woman and Judas, one of the, the, uh, the disciples of Jesus. Now, there are a lot of, there's a lot of debate as to why Judas would have betrayed his rabbi. Again, a rabbi in this culture was a very special and sacred uh, relationship between him and his disciples. Um, most Jewish um, uh, tradition and literature says that the relationship between a rabbi and his students was even more special, more intimate, and more sacred than the relationship between a, a parent and their child. And so what would have motivated Judas to go and sell Jesus out especially for such a meager amount of money. Now, there are basically three options uh, that are, are batted around quite a bit. Now, the first is the one that I heard uh, most um, readily when I was growing up, and that was that Judas was just greedy. Uh, it's said in the Gospels that Judas was in charge of the money of the disciples, whatever money uh, was given to them. Judas was kind of the keeper of the purse strings, and uh, it was also said in the Gospels that... Um, uh, that he took some from uh, the the ministry money of Jesus. And so some believe that Judas was just greedy and he saw an opportunity to make a quick buck and he sold Jesus out. Again, I find that kind of hard to believe that that a disciple would sell out uh, their rabbi for a, me a meager two to four hundred dollars. Um, that could have been the case, but I, I think maybe one of the other two possibilities is probably more likely uh, to be the case, uh, at least in my opinion, of why Judas did this. Now, the second option that is, is mentioned quite a bit is that Judas was thinking when he joined Jesus that he would uh, Jesus would be a military messiah, that he would come on the scene, uh, that he would be this messiah who would uh, um, fight against the Romans, would overthrow uh, the pagan oppressors that were over the nation of Israel, and that Judas had been with Jesus for about three and a half years, hadn't seen Jesus really do anything to fight against the Romans. In fact, he was constantly preaching this gospel that his kingdom was not of this earth, but it was more of a spiritual kingdom. And so Judas may have thought that he could force Jesus into kind of starting this revolution and overthrowing the Romans if he had Jesus arrested, that surely Jesus would defend himself, begin fighting back, and that would institute uh, the, the kingdom of God here on this earth. That would kind of explain why Jesus um, uh, felt seemed to have felt so badly 
uh, after seeing Jesus arrested, beaten, that Jesus wasn't fighting back and defending himself, uh, when he saw that uh, it was leading to Jesus' um, crucifixion, maybe he uh, saw that it was going in a direction he didn't anticipate, became grief-stricken uh, and depressed to the point where he was willing to commit suicide because he felt, I've just betrayed my uh, rabbi and led to uh, his death. That could be an option. Another option that is batted around quite a bit is that Judas basically just felt shamed by Jesus, uh, not only because Jesus was kind of ridiculing the religious establishment of that day. He was uh, fighting against uh, the people who were often looked up to uh, in uh, Jewish culture, the, the Pharisees and to some extent the Sadducees. And um, maybe G uh, Judas also felt shamed by Jesus where uh, Jesus had called him out for rebuking uh, the woman who was anointing Jesus. At least on one occasion, maybe twice, uh, Judas was rebuked uh, along with the other disciples. And so maybe Judas felt shamed and so he decided he would get even uh, with Jesus. Or maybe he just saw where things were headed. He saw that Jesus had offended the religious leaders of his day. Uh, he saw that it was probably a losing battle uh, being on Jesus's side and that uh, not only was Jesus going to be killed, but maybe them as well. And so maybe Judas was deciding that he would um, uh, use this opportunity to suck up to the powers of that day and kind of get in good with them by betraying Jesus. We're not really told, but those are just some of the uh, the leading um, ideas as to why Judas would have done that. Whatever the case may have been, the religious leaders of that day didn't want to arrest Jesus and try to kill him during the festival of Passover and unleavened bread that follows Passover. Um, but they decided to rush their plans because now here's a disciple of Jesus who's willing to betray him. And so uh, it wasn't initially their plan, but they see an opportunity and they're going to capitalize on it. So they... They make the deal, they give him 30 pieces of silver, and then they wait for Judas to give them the information of where would be the best time uh, to come and arrest Jesus. Now, that takes us uh, to the Passover meal. And that probably happens uh, Thursday evening is when that would have fallen. And so Jesus tells his disciples to go uh, into Jerusalem, and it's there that they're going to uh, celebrate the Passover meal. And so uh, here's a picture of kind of, uh, the room that is typically uh, seen and thought of as uh, the upper room where Jesus has his Passover meal. I, I don't know whether or not this is, in fact, uh, the room, but this is the room that um, tradition says that Jesus celebrated that meal uh, with them there in Jerusalem. Now, to be fair, uh, a lot of people, when they think of the Lord's Supper or the Passover meal with Jesus, uh, there the last night with his disciples. They think of probably uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, famous painting of the Passover. Uh, that's uh, not at all what it would have been like. Uh, here, you know, it, It's not exactly uh, how uh, in that day and time Jesus would have celebrated this meal as a, a Jewish rabbi with his disciples. And so what would it have looked like? Um, Instead of that straight long table that you see there in that painting, it would have been actually most likely what is called a triclinium. And this was a U-shaped table uh, where people typically sit on the outside of the table and on the inside of the table, inside of that U-shaped triclinium, there would have either been uh, food laid out uh, for people to grab or the servants would have 
come in there uh, to refill cups and to bring in the food and things of that nature. And so instead of chairs uh, around the edge of this triclinium, there would have been these mats where instead of sitting in chairs like we're used to, they would have leaned, uh, they would have kind of reclined, leaning on their left side, and they would have so that they could eat with their right hand. And uh, that's going to be uh, come important in just a second. But another thing that you want to note that will be important as you understand what's going on during the Lord's Supper there is the seating arrangement around this triclinium would have been very important. Now, according to Jewish custom, um, the seating would have been specifically arranged either from the oldest to the youngest of a family or from the most honored uh, going around the table to the the least honored or the lowest on the totem pole. And, and sometimes even uh, you know a servant would be there at that um, last seat there on the table, and that last seat of the table would be closest to the door coming in and out of that room so that whoever's sitting there, whether it be the youngest or whether it be the lowest um, uh, as far as rank, they could easily get up go out of the room to get any more supplies that are needed and then be able to come back. And that's going to become important in just a minute. So as they're coming into uh, the upper room here, the disciples have set aside for Jesus. Uh, Typically you would have washed your feet, washed your hands, kind of cleaned yourself off before you get to the table. Unfortunately, that was overlooked at this um, um, moment in Jesus's celebration of the Passover with his disciples. This isn't the first time that this happens. This actually happened another time in Jesus' ministry where he was hanging out with a Pharisee and they failed to do this uh, custom as well. But that's going to become important in just a moment. So as... um, as they're sitting around this tri, uh, triclinium table, uh, we're going to see that the disciples begin kind of arguing amongst themselves um, as to who's most important. And the reason why that would have been is because we, we're not told who sat around which place uh, around that triclinium, but the disciples probably were vying for who got to sit where. Um, And we're not told who sat where, but we can kind of piece together some of the details of the gospel accounts to get an idea. Now, what we do know is that um, Peter was close enough to Jesus that he could um, talk with John, who seems to be the closest to Jesus while they're having this meal. But he's not close enough to Jesus. Peter's not close enough to Jesus where he could ask Jesus himself who Jesus is talking about when Jesus refers to someone is going to betray me. Peter's close enough, though, to signal or mention or call out to John to ask Jesus himself. So Peter's not very close, but John is close enough to hear from Peter and to lean over and talk to Jesus and ask the question without any of the other disciples kind of hearing what's going on. If that's the case, then John most likely is to Jesus' right there at the table on Jesus' right hand so that he can kind of, as he's leaning, as John is leaning on his left side, he would have leaned back onto the chest of Jesus so that he could have asked uh, who Jesus is referring to. So Peter's probably at the end of the triclinium in the seat of uh, least prominence, uh, which is interesting. Either Peter was kind of uh, stuck with that position because all the other uh, seats have been taken, or maybe uh, Jesus had assigned Uh, Peter that position because Peter typically is thought of as the leader of the disciples and maybe Jesus is teaching Peter that to be the leader you also have to be the servant that the last shall be the first and the first shall be the last maybe Jesus had Peter sit there 
as kind of an object lesson for Peter. And that's going to be important in just a second as well. And so Peter's probably at the end of the triclinium. Uh, John is probably to the right side, the right hand of Jesus there at the triclinium. And on the left side, and this seat, according to Jewish custom, would have been a seat of honor as well. You know, uh, John and James both argued who's going to be at the right and left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. So if John's at the right hand, the left hand is another place of honor as well. And from what we can tell, piecing together some of the details of the gospel accounts of this Last Supper, that place of honor most likely uh, was um, the place of Judas at the Last Supper. And the reason why we think that is because um, as Jesus is going forward with uh, the Passover meal, he hands uh, Judas a piece of bread that he has dipped in a bowl. And the only way that he would have done that is if Judas is close enough to him. And according to Jewish custom, a part of this meal you would dip and then you would hand to your left. And so John would have handed uh, Jesus a piece of bread. Jesus would have handed Judas a piece of bread and would have gone around the table in that manner. And so that means that Judas is seated at this place where in Jewish custom would have been a seat of honor. And again, we don't know if Jesus sat Judas there, assigned Judas that seat of honor. Maybe Jesus knowing what Judas was about to do. This was Jesus reaching out to Judas, uh, again, loving his enemies, maybe trying to soften the heart of Judas uh, so that um, he would rethink what he's about to do. Or maybe Judas, just in his pride, sat down there, assumed that he deserved the most honored seat there next to Jesus, and just took that seat for himself. Again, we're not really told, but again, noting those arrangements of seats, it's interesting that that the disciples probably uh, had a problem with who was sitting where at that table. And so we see there in the Gospels that the disciples begin to argue amongst themselves who was the greatest. Now, as they're making, as they're kind of arguing about their seating arrangements and who deserves to sit where, Jesus takes upon himself to do an object lesson to teach them about greatness in his kingdom. And so he stands up, he um, he wraps a towel around him, and he goes around. Remember, they're reclining out as they're leaning in there with their, with their feet behind them. And Jesus goes around and begins washing each of their feet because no one took it upon themselves to go and wash their feet. Now, another interesting component there that we see in the Gospels is that as Jesus is washing the feet of all the disciples, the only disciple who really pushes back against Jesus washing their feet is Peter. And it's interesting because if if... If we piece this together correctly, and if Peter is in fact at the far end of this triclinium, at the seat of the lowest uh, honor, then it would be interesting because it's probably Peter having a guilty conscience because as the person sitting in the lowest seat of honor there at that triclinium, it would have fallen to Peter to get up and meet that need. It would have fallen to him as the servant leader to go and wash feet and make sure that that was taken care of. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus, the, the most honored one at that table, goes around and does it himself. And then Peter, again, probably because of a guilty conscience, it's, it's saying, no, no, please don't wash my feet, especially if I'm sitting here at the, the place of lowest honor. Don't wash my feet. But again, Jesus tells him that he has to wash his feet, that this is that you can't have a part of my kingdom and, 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 and what I'm doing if I don't wash your feet. And then Jesus or Peter says, well, then wash all of me. And Peter says, and Jesus says, that's enough. You know, you know, it's enough for me just to 
uh, wash your feet. And so all that, just again, those details really kind of make this story uh, come to life and, and as you begin to understand some of that. Now, another thing, as the Passover meal uh, begins to um, uh, be underway, as Jesus finishes washing, washing everyone's feet and he comes back to sit down, the Passover meal begins. And one of the things that we need to understand about the Passover meal is that it centers around um, uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt. And everything about, about the Passover meal is symbolic to point back to that. And some of the elements of uh, the Passover meal are, are most important. Of course, the lamb there is going to be very important. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But also, there would be three loaves of unleavened bread. Those are going to be important. And the whole meal centers around four cups of wine. Everyone would have either four individual cups of wine or their cup, their one cup would be filled four different times. And each of those cups are important during the Passover meal because those cups are often referred to as uh, the four I will cups because they point to the four I will promises of God in his deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Those four cups are, each of them are named. There's the first cup, which is the cup of sanctification. The second cup is the cup of deliverance uh, or judgment. And then there's the cup of redemption. And then last, the cup of praise or restoration, as sometimes it's referred to. And each of those cups point to an I will promise. There's the first cup is the I will bring you out of um out from underneath the yoke of the Egyptians. All these come from Exodus 6. And then there's the second cup is, I will rescue you from slavery. Uh, the third cup is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and, a might, and with mighty acts of judgment. And then lastly, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Each of those cups are going to be important. And it's in those cups that we're going to see with one of those cups that uh, Jesus uses to institute what we now celebrate as Christians as the Lord's Supper. And all of this is going to be important as we move forward. So the first cup, as Jesus begins to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, is that cup of sanctification. And then uh, as Jesus, as that cup is poured, then uh, Exodus uh, 6, verse 6, would be recited. Uh, Jesus would most likely recite it himself, and he would say, I, uh, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the bondage, are from the yoke of the Egyptians, and then he would bless that cup of wine by saying the probably the typical prayer of blessing over a cup of wine by saying, "Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who's created the fruit of the vine." And then uh, that blessing would oftentimes continue on. And then after giving thanks for the wine, everyone would drink that. And then the head of the house, who would be Jesus in this particular uh, instance, would then take uh, some of the um, the herbs, oftentimes it was a bitter herb, uh, a lot of times uh, horseradish was used, and they would uh, take it and then they would pass it to the person of their life. So Jesus would take this and he would pass it uh, to Judas and it would kind of go around uh, the table like that. And this bitter herbs uh, would be dipped in oftentimes either salt water or vinegar to, to symbolize the tears of the Israelites under bondage and the sweat as they labored under the yoke of slavery. And that would end the first cup of the Passover, the cup of um, uh, the, the cup of sanctification. Uh, and then they would move on to the second cup, that is the cup of judgment. And so at this time they would pour the second cup, but they wouldn't drink it right off the bat. And to this cup that the youngest uh, at the table, or maybe even Peter being the least honored there at the table, uh, would then ask a series of four questions. The questions would be this. Number one, 
why is this night different from all other nights? And then Jesus would answer that with explaining what happened uh, to Israel under the, um, in the deliverance of them from Egypt. And the second question would be, and on all other nights, uh, we are able to eat leaven as well as unleavened bread. But why on this night do we only eat unleavened bread? And then Jesus would answer that question, explaining more of the, the deliverance of, of Egypt. And then the third question would be, on all other nights, we're able to eat all kinds of herbs. But on this night, only bitter herbs. Why do we eat only bitter herbs? And why do we dip them uh, twice in uh, the vinegar or salt water? And then that and then Jesus would answer that. And then the fourth question would be, on all other nights we're able to eat meat that's roasted, stewed, or boiled, but on, on this night we only eat roasted meat. And then Jesus would answer that question. Again, going through the history of Israel's exodus. And then once they were done, then they would sing Psalms 113 and 114, the Hillel Psalms. And the way they would either do this, either Jesus would sing the, uh, the lines of the Psalms, and then the disciples would sing hallelujah after that, uh, or they would all just sing the psalm all together. And then that would move us uh, into drinking uh, this cup of wine. That, again, it hasn't been drank yet. It's the second cup, the cup of judgment. They would then uh, drink this and recite uh, uh, Exodus 6.6 6 for this particular cup, which is, I will deliver you. Uh, from your bondage. And it's at this point that they begin eating the lamb that's there, as well as um, the two loaves of unleavened bread that are there. And Jesus would pick up the loaves, he would break it, bless it, said, Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commands uh, and has commanded us to eat unleavened bread. And it's probably at this point when Jesus breaks that bread uh, that he also announces to the disciples uh, that uh, of his betrayal. And so it's at this time that the disciples are all scurrying about talking and are all, are all abuzz about who this could be. And Peter, wanting to know, signals to John from the other end of the triclinium to ask Jesus who this is. And Jesus, he leans on, uh, John leans on Jesus, asks, and then Jesus says, it's who I dip uh, this bread and give it to. Jesus dips the bread, hands it to his left as is custom to Judas. Now, maybe John doesn't understand. He just thinks that Jesus is going along with the tradition of how things are supposed to go. But that's the signal that it's Judas. And Jesus tells Judas to go quickly and do what he set his heart to do. And it's at this point that G, uh, Judas gets up from the mill in the middle of the Passover and leaves. And no one really knows what he's doing. Maybe he's going to get some more supplies or Jesus has just told him to go run a quick errand, whatever it may be. But Judas has now left the Passover meal. Now, another thing that we need to understand, as, as Judas has just left, now we move on to the third cup, the cup of redemption. Now, with Judas gone, Jesus focuses the disciples who are still talking about who the betrayer may be. He focuses them back on the Passover meal, and he moves to the third cup, the cup of redemption. And this is the cup that I believe that uh, Jesus uses to institute the Lord's Supper, which again, I think is really interesting. If Judas has just left, that Jesus waited until Judas left before instituting the, uh, the Lord's Supper. And it's likely at this meal that Jesus begins to focus 
the disciples on what's about to happen with his crucifixion. And he reads, interesting enough, from Exodus 6 where the verse would be, I will redeem you with outstretched arms and with great judgment. Again, it's a wonderful picture because Jesus is about to be crucified. His arms are to be outstretched in just a minute, and he's going to redeem them with great judgments that are going to fall not on the nation of Israel or even on Egypt as they think about the Passover, but on Jesus himself. And I believe it's at this point that Jesus uh, that we see in the Gospels where it says, um, While they were eating, he took some of the bread, and after he blessed it and broke it, he gave it to them, say, Take Take it. This is my body. And also he goes on to say, and this in the same way he took the cup. This would be the cup of redemption. And after uh, they had eaten the bread saying, this is the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, it's quite significant. that This uh, would be the cup that Jesus would institute um, uh, the Lord's Supper in. Again, this is the cup of redemption. Uh, it is, the, it is the, the cup of rescuing Egypt with an outstretched arm. And in fact, we see in this particular cup, if it's the third cup that Jesus uh, does this with, he ends up in uh, Matthew's gospel. Jesus says this after he's instituted this. He says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for um for many for the forgiveness of sin. Now notice this next line. This is going to be important. But I say to you, I will not drink of this uh, from this fruit of the vine from now until the day uh, when I uh, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus would have drank this one, but he's saying after this, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. That's going to be important. Remember that as we go into the fourth cup of uh, the Passover meal. So they're done with the first three cups. The fourth cup is called the cup of praise. Now, it's at this cup that they would have poured a fourth cup and they would have blessed it again, uh, the customary blessing for the wine. And then they would have read Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7, which is the last of the I will promises. And it says this, Then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, as they would have done this, they would have normally drank this. And the disciples may have drank it all, uh, already uh, because that would have been the normal custom for um, the Jewish Passover meal. But if, if we're correct in placing uh, the Lord's Supper at the third cup, then that means Jesus would not have drank this. And here's why I find that really interesting. Because this cup of praise would mean that Jesus didn't finish that Passover meal with the disciples. It would have meant that it, it, that he's going to finish it at the marriage supper of the Lamb when all of the people of God, when all of the church gather to Jesus, and then we all finish out this Passover meal with Jesus that he started just before his crucifixion. We would finish uh, there at the marriage supper of the Lamb as we all come together and celebrate this Passover meal, this Lord's Supper, all together. Now, again, I know that this is all speculation. I'm, this is just us piecing together various elements of, of what would have most likely gone on at that time. But man, how powerful that would be as we all come together to celebrate the Passover meal uh, that Jesus uh, that we read about Jesus uh, inaugurating there uh, in the last week of his life in the Gospels. That we would all come together and celebrate that with him. I, that would be just a, a, 
a powerful and beautiful picture uh, that we could all look forward to. Now, with that said, we're told that Jesus and his disciples would finish out the Passover celebration by singing a psalm. According to uh, Jewish tradition, this would most likely be Psalm 115 to 118. And uh, after this, then they would uh, head out uh, of the upper room leaving Jerusalem, going through the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and we all know what goes on there. We're going to pause it there for this week, and we're going to start there in the Garden of Gethsemane next week uh, as kind of a little cliffhanger. Uh, and we're going to look at the arrest of Jesus and the various trials that he goes through uh, leading up to his crucifixion. So I hope that this study has been a blessing to you. I've really enjoyed uh, preparing it, and I hope that God will use it to kind of open your eyes to some of the things that that are going on in this last week uh, leading up to uh, Easter Sunday. I hope that you'll think on these things and, and that God will just bless you as you continue to celebrate what a wonderful Savior we have. I look forward to us uh, coming together again as we continue this uh, series that I've thoroughly enjoyed and I've heard so many uh, good feedback, uh, so much good feedback from each of you. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. Write to me on Facebook. Uh, let other people know about this series and, and uh, encourage them uh, to join us as we continue uh, this study. But until then, until then, I hope you all take care and God bless.